Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through His Word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Hey, Light Church, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, before we dive into worship and a message, I wanted to let you know a special announcement. We are releasing our very first worship album on November 10th. It's going to be a five-song EP under the name Light Music Collection. And so we'd love for you guys to mark that on your calendar. Uh, stream it as soon as it comes out. As a matter of fact, we're going to give you a little clip right here you can listen to before uh, we dive into today's service. Father, humbly I repent. I confess I've had my way From the dirt you lift me up Come and make me new, I pray Lay it down. So as a church, we've been in this series called Trellis, where we are using that as imagery the same way a trellis holds up a vine for this thing called spiritual formation. It's the rhythms, the habits, the disciplines that make up our life, that form our spirit. And whether we do them intentionally or unintentionally, we are consistently being formed. But the Bible is very clear that we are to be formed into the image of Christ. And in order for us to be formed into the image of Christ, that means that we need to be people who take up the habits, the rhythms, and the disciplines that Jesus displayed in his life. And so as we've been doing the last few weeks, and we'll be doing that for the next couple, and the goal is at the end of this, we would create for ourselves a personal and a corporate trellis, a, or what kind of the ancients call a rule of life, where we would be able to look at the, the certain priorities and the ebb and flow of our life and to say, if I lean into these things, in and of themselves, they don't make me more godly, but oftentimes they open ourselves, ourselves up to God. They open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. And that's our goal. We want to welcome the work and the activity of the Holy Spirit to form us into the image of Christ. And today we're going to be talking about a couple of different disciplines that were not on our agenda. They weren't on our map, uh, but they're ones that have really been something personally for me that, the, that Christ has been challenging me with. The disciplines today we're going to be talking about are limitations, the discipline and the, and the rhythm of recognizing our human limits, and then also the discipline of listening, of what is God saying, and even how those two things interact. And so I want to share with you a little bit, it's going to be a little bit of a different message. I want to share with you uh, just kind of a personal and vulnerable space of something that happened uh, last week in my life. Uh, and it has to do with dealing with uh, a panic attack and some anxiety. And so what I wanted to say is if, if that topic or those issues um, feels like something you, um, maybe you're not ready to listen to, maybe you're dealing with your own anxiety, I just wanted to say that it's fine if this is not the message that you feel like you want to hear uh, right now and you're welcome to turn off the recording or skip it. And at the same time, um, God has really revealed a lot of healing and hope in my own life that I would love to share with you. And regardless if, 
if uh, mental and emotional health is a struggle you personally wrestle with, it is definitely a struggle within our broader culture. And the things that Jesus invites us into in terms of our own limitations and our ability to listen to God in those limitations was for everyone. Um, so with that, I wanted to, before we dive into the text, which will be in 1 Kings 18 and 19, I just want to share a little bit of a story that happened last week. And if you guys saw the recording um, or if you're at our 9 a.m. service, you might have picked up on this. But um, long story short, uh, when I started preaching at the 9 a.m. service, uh, a couple minutes into it, I got hit with a pretty intense panic attack. And what made this, um, which if you've ever known someone who's gone through that, have gone through that, you know, it's, it's a really scary and disorienting thing, and uh, which compounded that the last time I had preached at our 9 a.m. service, I had the same thing happen. So it was the second time in a row at our 9 a.m. gathering that I got um, really, uh, un, I was unprepared for it. It hit me, um, felt like I was immediately going to maybe pass out, um, needed to sit down, uh, had to try and catch my breath. Um, like I said, it, it immediately put me into a mental fog. And so I'm kind of working through my notes, but I'm internally working on a dialogue. Do I need to get off stage? And, and all the while, while the, the physical and the mental things are, pretty, are, are just kind of dealing with that fear, trying to figure out what's going on, at a soul level, I'm just feeling really discouraged. Um, I'm feeling really... Um, yeah, just having a hard time. Like, Lord, why is this happening right now? And am I letting people down? I feel like I'm letting people down. And uh, a few of you guys reached out to me uh, during that set. I got text messages of people like, are you okay? So clearly, visibly, there's something going on. And I share that story, um, whether you are aware of it or not, uh, to let you in on a journey that, that the Lord has brought me on this week. So um, I immediately made some phone calls, and I feel like I've been able to get some answers and a path forward uh, in terms of why this is happening when I'm preaching, how to move forward. I just want to share that with you, um, things that were helpful for me. And, and my hope is that this would do a couple things. Number one, it might resource and equip people who have dealt with this or know people who have. Secondly, um, my hope is that in my own um, vulnerability and kind of exposing just kind of some weak moments in my life that maybe that would give you the courage to do that for yourself as well. Um, so one of the most encouraging conversations I had this week was with uh, a therapist who I really know and respect who works solely with pastors and asked me tons of questions working through it. I chatted with my doctor and uh, what was described to me is that uh, one of the things that governs that space of anxiety is your adrenal gland and it's what produces hopefully the right amount of adrenaline in your body. And oftentimes when we hear things like anxiety, it immediately has this negative connotation. But what we don't realize is that it actually is given to us as a gift and because it allows us specifically when human beings were living in, in primitive contexts and needed to at an instant be able to run away from a wild animal or get to safety, it's a wonder chemical that your body produces. The problem is when you're, you have no need to run away from something or to fight something, it's just in your body, it does some interesting things. Now, for me, uh, kind of what was discovered is that my, uh, my adrenal gland has been fatigued and it has been really, really low. And we'll talk about some reasons for that in a second. 
But when your adrenal gland is fatigued and it's low and um, you're in a high anxiety moment like preaching, which is naturally that you use adrenaline to kind of keep you hyper-focused and to be aware. Uh, but because of the fatigue in that specific part of my body, uh, rather than operating and functioning normally, I was flooded with a, with a chemical called, um, let me look at my notes here, called cortisol. And cortisol is a stress hormone. And cortisol is uh, what leads you from being anxious into a full-on panic attack. And that's what happened uh, for me. And that being described to me was actually helpful to realizing, okay, there's, there's a reason why that was going on in my body and it makes sense why it happened in that moment. And so kind of my next questions that I was asking is like, okay, if I need to address um, adrenal fatigue, if I need to address that, what are some things I need to do? And so a few things that were shared with me, and again, I'm sharing this because whether you're preaching or not, um, many of you guys, stress is the thing that drains your adrenal gland. And so if you're in high stress environments for long periods of time, you're more vulnerable to things like anxiety. You're more vulnerable to cortisol or an, un an unhealthy amount of it. And so a few things that were said that are clinically proven to help with that. Number one, uh, and all, all of these three I was not doing. Number one is like you need to be having eight hours of sleep every night. Um, and if you're in an environment that has um, higher strain on that part of your body, you might need to even have more. Uh, secondly, you should be doing at least five hours of cardio every single week. Again, that was something that I loved to run, but I was in a season where I wasn't exercising regularly. You should not be having excess carbs or sugars. Again, normally I'm pretty good at that, but I was in a season where, I mean, like, gosh, we were coming up on Halloween with candy and falls here, and um, I wasn't sleeping well. I wasn't exercising. I was not eating well. And I was in an environment and in the season of our church that had high demand on us. Our house just got flooded. And so all of, I think it just created this perfect storm. And so I share all that to say, personally, um, I'm adjusting some things in my life to make sure that I have the appropriate recovery time for what Sundays take out of me. Dr. Archibald Hart, um, out of Fuller Theological Seminary, uh, shares kind of his findings that for someone who preaches a 30-minute message, it does the same thing to your adrenal gland as eight hours of work. Um, and so when you start doing the simple math of not just preaching one 30-minute message, but sometimes four or five 50-minute messages, uh, that's, that's doing something to my body. And, we, um, and that's something that I'm just kind of being aware of. And it's like we talked about today, it's, it's becoming aware of my limitations. And so um, whether it's preaching shorter sermons, whether it's sharing the load with our preaching team um, and some other creative ideas, uh, and, and even just the simple things of sleeping and eating and exercising appropriately for the job that I'm doing, um, all of this has been very eye-opening to me. Um, I really questioned if I was going to share this with you, but um, there's, there's two reasons why. Uh, number one is we live in, in an overstressed and exhausted culture. And my guess is that more than a few of you watching this 
are dealing with some of the symptoms at a physiological level of the effects of being overstressed and dealing with anxiety. And some of what needs to happen here is recognizing that as human beings in a technological world that says you're limitless, we very much have limitations. We need to be aware of those things. And the second reason um, we decided just to kind of share this part of the story is um, I felt it would be really unhealthy for me to not for me just to push through and pretend like it didn't happen, I think makes me uh, more susceptible uh, to dealing with unhealthy levels of, in my life. So I'm sharing this with you as your pastor, uh, not so much to garner sympathy, although that's, that's fine if that's what it does, uh, but to do a couple things. Number one, I just want to ask for your prayer. Um, prayer that uh, at a physi- physiological level, whatever needs to like happen in my body would happen. That'll take some time. Um, and secondly, just prayer for me at a soul level. I think this has exposed a lot of things in me that have been um, interesting to, to work through, um, particularly just feelings of embarrassment and feelings of weakness. And uh, those, those are unpleasant feelings to have of feeling like I'm letting people down or letting my church down. Um, but I also recognize that I don't think God is, is authoring those emotions in me or that narrative in me. And so this is uh, a little bit of a confession moment, not, not so much of sin, but confession of weakness. And so I approach the text today, um, trying to be honest with you as I can. Um, I love preaching. I love opening up the Word of God. I love our church. I have felt so loved and supported in this. Um, And I plan on continuing to move forward, but not masking my limitations, but being aware of them. And and today's teaching is is very much, it's it's being birthed out of, uh, obviously, the ancient texts of Scripture, but also my life. And my hope is that however this hits you, that this might open up some things for you to, to work through and to even confess some weakness in your own life as well. So the text I want to, uh, for us to dive into today is 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. It's a long text, so I'm only going to be reading some of the verses and kind of filling the rest. But I would encourage you, if you have some time this week, just sit with 1 Kings 18 and 19. And it's uh, a familiar story, but one I've desperately needed this week. And so the context of this is that Israel is in the middle of a three-year famine. Uh, King Ahab is an evil king. His wife Jezebel is uh, wreaking havoc. Israel has fallen away from worship of Yahweh and they're worshiping Baal. And as this is going on in the middle of this drought, Elijah is the primary prophet of Israel. And as he's prophesying, he runs into Obadiah, who's another prophet in in, in Elijah says, okay, go call Ahab. I'm going to talk to him. And Obadiah is like, he's going to kill me. He tells him, he's like, man, I've been hiding prophets. I have like a hundred prophets hidden away. I'm bringing food and water to in the midst of this drought, 50 in one cave, 15 in another. And now you want me to go talk to Ahab and finally relents. And so they have this meeting and Elijah just confronts Ahab and just says, you need to decide who you're going to worship. Are you going to worship Baal? Are you going to worship Yahweh? And so he recommends, he says, essentially, let's have a duel. Let's have a face-off on Mount Carmel. And so 450 prophets of Baal show up on the mountain, and Elijah shows up, and a large contingent of the nation of Israel show up to watch what's going to happen. 
And the agreement is this, that they're going to um, have two offerings on two different altars, and, but they're not allowed to bring fire. And whoever's God will send fire on the offering. And so Elijah says, you guys go first. And so these prophets of Baal build this altar, slay this, this cow, they dance around, they're doing their worship, they're actually mutilating their own body. It's violent and disgusting. All the while, the people are watching and Elijah's kind of kicking back, actually talks, says that he's kind of doing some trash talking about their God. And, and this is kind of where I ought to pick up the story in 1 Kings 18, verse 29. It says, and as midday passed, They raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Meaning, Baal was silent. Verse 30, then Elijah said to the people, come near me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. He then goes on, he asks to drench the altar with water. Just tons of water, more, more. Now, this is three years into a drought. This is a massive statement that Elijah is making. And, and as this is happening, verse 36 is that at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Verse 37, answer me, O Lord, Answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This then ensues this massive uh, turning upon the prophets of Baal and Elijah standing there and, and repentance across the people watching that like Yahweh is God. And after this, Elijah goes and tells the wicked king Ahab, he says, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Now listen to this interesting verse. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garments and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So check this out. After Elijah calls fire down from heaven and God obliterates his offering and there's massive national repentance, he tells his king, get in your chariot, which was the fastest form of transportation back then, And the spirit of God falls on Elijah and he outruns a chariot. I mean, this guy is just absolutely going nuts with bringing God's kingdom force. Now, it talks, then it shifts the story to Jezebel, who's really kind of the the evil demonic mastermind behind Israel's fall. And Jezebel gets word of this and she threatens Elijah's life. She says, hey, what happened to these prophets of Baal is going to happen to you. And in verse 3 of chapter 19 says, Then he, Elijah, was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. 
And he lay down and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and he touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. This is the same mountain where the Ten Commandments were given, Mount Sinai. Verse 9, Then he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What? are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah then goes and repeats his answer. Essentially this rant. The only one left. They're trying to take my life. And in, in, in offering this same response, it, it's, it's as if he's offering his resignation. And the Lord gives him what he wants. He like says, okay, you don't have to do this anymore. He says, go anoint Elisha which a few chapters later he'll go and do, and he'll go and take the mantle of Elijah to the next season. Yet, at the end, he responds to his fear. He responds to this narrative he's created. I'm the only one left. And Yahweh says, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel and all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Meaning, you're not the only one. Not only uh, was Obadiah, telling you there's already a hundred prophets hidden away. Not only did you leave your servant back to Beersheba, but there's 7,000 that have not bowed their knee. But even as he offers him this explanation to his false narrative, he lets him kind of come to the end of this season of his life. And as I've been sitting with that this week and this passage, I've, I've found so much similarity. Like it, it, from one chapter to the next, it is so polarizing. In one chapter, I mean, fire's coming from heaven. It's beautiful and there's repentance and there's this incredible move of God sweeping through Israel. The evil is being eradicated. Rain is being restored to a drought-ridden land. That the, the hand of God is clearly on Elijah. He's out running chariots for crying out loud. And then almost instantaneously, he's racked with fear. He's running for his life and he wants to quit. And I, I found myself in Elijah's story. I found this place of like, God, how, how quickly it can, or sometimes even simultaneously, 
it can feel like you're doing something so big and beautiful. And at the same time, I'm becoming very aware of my own human limitations. And so I want to talk a little bit about our human limitations and how God uses limited people to accomplish his divine causes. And so I want to just talk about five areas where Elijah faced um, weakness. He faced his own human limitations. These are the five. Number one, spiritual exhaustion, demonic opposition, relational isolation, physical depletion, and a narrative distortion. His spiritual exhaustion happened because, I mean, can you imagine the radical kingdom demonstration that just took place in the camp? I mean, he just saw God do something that has, has transcended thousands of years because of how radical that moment was. There, there's spiritual exhaustion from that moment. There's demonic opposition. Um, oftentimes, I grew up hearing this thing called the spirit of Jezebel, and I always was like, what, is that, what does that even mean? Well, what you see is Jezebel was not only a wicked queen, she was being used by, she was a, almost a, a prototype of the enemy's work in that, that directed all of that evil attention directly onto Elijah. The third thing is that he had relational isolation. I mean, think about this. Not only did he not see the other faithful Israelites or the other prophets, it says that he literally left his servant. He, he had no one. Fourthly, he just had physical depletion. Right? He had just had massive pour out. I mean, he just ran faster than a chariot. He's journeying into the wilderness in a drought-ridden desert. And he's just physically come to the end of himself. And then lastly, all of those things, the spiritual, the, the relational, the physical, have created him a narrative distortion. Like he, he can't see reality correctly. And what I find so beautiful about this story is how God responds to all five of these limitations. Number one, when Elijah is spiritually exhausted, God shows up and does the work. He fills him not only to, to call fire from heaven, he literally fills him to outrun a chariot. I mean, there, there is a spirit empowerment. And sometimes when we're faced with human limitations, God does that. He's like, you don't have to be strong. I'll give you the strength to do it. Like you, you, all you have to do, I think about Exodus 14, 14, it says, you don't have to fight this battle. All you have to do is be still. And there's times where the spirit of God gives us supernatural ability to do things we could never do on our own. And that happened for Elijah in the first chapter. Next, when he's faced with demonic opposition and Jezebel's literally coming against him, uh, we are reminded at the end of, his, of Yahweh's speech in, at Mount Horeb, he says, listen, there are still 7,000 who have not bowed their knee. Now, what we know of in the Old Testament, what happened in the moment now has happened eternally because of Christ. We now know that no matter what spiritual opposition comes away, no matter what assignment of the enemy is coming at us, that Satan is now a defeated foe, right? That Christ is the one who rules and reigns. And if he is enthroned on your heart, you can rest in that. The third limitation that Elijah had was relational isolation. I find it really interesting part of the story of how Elijah was moving further and further away from community. And the first thing that God does, before he even tells them to like hey, eat this or drink this, he sends an angel. Like he literally surrounds him again with community. 
And at the end of this speech, he just says, you're not, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, you're not alone. There's more people around you than you realize. And I think that this is, this is such a beautiful thing for me, even in my own life. I know this week as I've been dealing with like the reality of my own limitation and exhaustion and, and spiritual opposition, all of these things, one of the most beautiful gifts for me this week is just feeling community. Um, and like I said, it's, it's really hard for me. Um, like I want to be humble, but I don't know if I want to be weak. So when I'm weak, it's really hard for me to... Um, lean into that. And this week, I really haven't had an option. I didn't have an option on Sunday. And the support I've gotten from my wife, the support I've gotten from our staff, the support I've gotten from our friends, some of you guys who reached out, has done something to my soul. It's like, it's, it's in my human limitations. I wasn't exposed. I wasn't embarrassed. I was loved. I was seen. The next thing that when Elijah faced physical depletion, right? He's literally in the desert, drought-ridden desert, and he's going there and he lays under a tree, thinks he's going to die. And the, the very thing that God does, I think this is so wild, is he just brings him food and water and tells him to take a nap. And then he does it again. I think sometimes the most spiritually mature thing we can do is actually nourish our physical bodies. I found it that when I was talking to my therapist and my doctor this week, they're like, you need to sleep more. You need to eat better. You need to exercise. You need to recognize that you are within a physical frame. Your body needs care. And I think that might just be a word for someone even watching this. Like, take care of yourself. That could be the most holy spiritual thing you can do. And the last thing is his narrative distortion, right? All of this accumulated and like Elijah no longer could see God's active hand. And in that moment, I thought this was so beautiful. The Lord doesn't rebuke him. He actually provides new leadership and more support and he honors him and gives him rest. This is the God that we serve. And so this week, as, as I, again, I just journey into my own vulnerability, my own weakness, I invite that this would be a church that continues to foster that kind of culture and that the reason why this is so important, why we talk about limitations, is that the, I think if I were to guess what the author of 1 Kings was trying to get us at, it was to try and to get us to focus on where does God speak. The reason I think this is because after the prophets of Baal try and do everything that they can to get Baal to respond, it says that there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then after Elijah takes control and starts doing his, Elijah's prayer is, answer me, Lord, answer me. It seems like the author is trying to get us to say the point of this passage is where is the voice of God? Which should not surprise us that 1 King 19 comes to a conclusion that God's voice wasn't in the fire, although fire just showed up at Mount Carmel. He wasn't in the earthquake or the wind like he did at Mount, um, Mount Sinai. God has showed up in those ways before, don't get me wrong. But in that moment, there was a still, soft whisper that drew Elijah out of the cave. And finally, when he's confronted with God, he wasn't given a speech. He wasn't given um, a lecture or a reprimand. 
he was asked a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And I just wonder today as you're watching this, um, what, what kind of question is God asking you? What it, and how kind that God is that God is asking questions. How relational is he? What are you doing here? Think about Adam and Eve when they're in the garden. The very first thing that God does when he sees them, he says, where are you? And then he asks, who told you you were naked? Like, who told you this lie? I mean, the, this pattern of God showing up and saying like, hey, he draws us out into that. And so that's why our two practices this week and my two practices this week is, is understanding my human limitations. The same way that Jesus had human limitations during his ministry on earth, I need to lean into mine. And secondly, what is God saying? And to not do that alone. Process that at your open table or with a friend or your spouse. Process that in, the, in an environment of, of understanding this is to be done within the context of community. And so I'll just love to pray for you. And before I do, I just want to read you this quote from Pete Scazzaro in his book, The Emotionally Healthy Church. He says, it is so freeing as a leader for me to utter the words, I can't. When we don't respect God's limits in our lives, we will often find ourselves overextended, stressed, and exhausted. And so, Light Church, it's my privilege and my honor um, to stand before you within my own human limitations and to thank you for the grace and the patience and the prayer that I feel surrounded by. And my hope is not only would I be received in this way, but that we would be a church and a culture that welcomes that kind of thing, that we can journey towards Christ's likeness, not with some sort of superficial holiness, but with an honest humanity that the Spirit of God can rest upon and form us into his image. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for the gift and the privilege of uh, even my personal life, just being able to share this sermon. Thank you for a church body that has made me feel so loved. Lord, I confess that the last couple of weeks have been pretty difficult for me. And I thank you for your kindness and your grace and your presence that has met me. Lord, I'm sorry for moments where I have let pride um, seep in in subtle ways. Lord, I pray like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 that I would find myself boasting in my weakness so that Christ's power would be made perfect in Jesus. That is why we are here. We are here for you. We are here for your power to be perfect. We love you. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Light Church Podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. We pray that the Lord would speak to you through his word. For more information, you can visit our website, lightsandiego.com.